Hi, this is Steve. Every once in a while, I get a little, let's say, hyper-focused on a particular idea. Well, maybe it's my desire to straighten out the actual timeline of Quentin Tarantino's entirely non-sequential Pulp Fiction. Maybe it's the need I had to go back through Fight Club and figure out what Marla Singer and the members of Project Mayhem were actually experiencing when they hung out with Tyler Durden. And naturally, I wanted to understand what was really happening with our more unreliable characters like Travis Bickle, Howard Beale, Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo, and of course, the entire cast of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. So it was natural enough when we tackled a modern noir like Chinatown that I wanted to solve the actual mystery. Unfortunately, like Jake Giddies, the more John and I dug in, the less we seemed to know. And yet, in some ways, that tremendous ambiguity is what makes Chinatown such a compelling film. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend a visit to our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream every movie we've ever reviewed. Maybe you can succeed where John and I failed. And if so, we definitely want to hear your solution to Chinatown. Then come back on Friday and listen to John and I get lost in the dark twists and turns of the labyrinth that is Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Oh, and one more thing. Almost a year ago, John and I started recording Cinephile Shorts, brief conversations about a wide range of topics exclusively for our supporters on Patreon. You got a sample of those shorts when we released our shorts compilation a few weeks ago. Our goal was to record a new short every week. Unfortunately, we fell quite a bit short of that goal, but we really want to make it happen. And so this week, we're posting our conversation on audio commentary tracks, which ones we like, which ones we hate, and which ones just make us laugh. All you have to do is visit patreon.com slash the cinephiles and pledge $3 a month or more to have access to all of these great discussions. And for $5 a month, you get to actually suggest a topic for our shorts. So that's Chinatown Part 2 coming this Friday and our discussion of commentary tracks exclusively on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to The Cinephiles, where this week we continue our exploration of Roman Polanski's Chinatown. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, writer, producer, and host over at Collider, co-host of the Top Ten show, The Geek Buddies, and of course, host of The Deep Cut, but very proud to be the co-host of The Cinephiles. Uh, And you say Roman Polanski's film, but today... Uh, with my interview with Hawk Koch, who's one of the producers of Chinatown, I have to say this is also Hawk Koch's yes, film, Chinatown. So I have a whole other point of view on this whole well, thing. Well, well, tell me, John, <laughs> why are you bringing up Hawk Koch today? I mean, what what is there some special connection we don't know about? Well, I was very fortunate, uh, thanks to uh, Steve Weintraub, who's one of my bosses here at Collider, uh, he mentioned uh, that he just randomly at a film screening uh, start, struck up a conversation with Hawk Koch, who was a very extroverted guy. As they were having the conversation and Hawk Koch was talking about old Hollywood and old school Hollywood, mentioned all these 70s films, he said, you know what? You'd be a great guest for John Roca for The Deep Cut, the show he does. I'll pitch it to him. And so Frosty came in the next day, pitched me Hawk Koch. I had no idea who he was at the time. And then when I did the research on him, within five minutes, I was extremely excited to interview yeah. him because he's produced uh, Rosemary's Baby, uh, um, uh, 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 The Way We Were, uh, even some comedies like Wayne's World, uh, Keeping the Faith. 
so Peggy Sue got married, even the beautician and the beast. So it was so great to sit down and talk with him for an hour on the deep cut, which will come up in the next couple of weeks, come out in the next couple of weeks. But we talked a little bit about Chinatown. And he's a very, very big fan of Roman Polanski. And he said Polanski taught me so much about making a movie while he was on the set producing the, the film. I'm sure. I mean, how mm-hmm. could you? I mean, whatever we've had to say about Polanski, and obviously we got stuff to say, Yeah, he's a master filmmaker. He also said we should find the time if we haven't already. I don't remember what we said in part one fully right now, but he said Jerry Goldsmith did the score, started working on this two weeks before. He was handed the project two weeks before. It's nine days. Yeah. Insane. I was going to talk about it at the end. But, oh, but, but, please. But no, 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 of course. it's uh, They had a composer. Yes. And the composer did the score for the whole film, and they did screenings, and the, basically the word came back of, this movie is amazing. This score is terrible. Yeah. And nine days before uh, it was to be released, they brought in Jerry Goldsmith. Unfortunately, Polanski had a gig in Europe to direct an opera. Mm. So he had to leave and he had to trust the editor and our good friend Bob Evans yeah. to supervise the score. And it's one of my favorite Jerry Goldsmith scores, Nine Days. Well, and here's one last thing with Hawk Koch. The reason he was in also was because he's written a memoir. About oh. his about his time and all these movie sets, and also about his relationship with his father. That's what the book is really about: mm. his relation, his broken relationship with his father, and how he found his way to repair it later in life. Really fantastic book. But he got to read it to Bob Evans before Bob Evans passed. Wow! He told me that he said a couple of weeks before Bob Evans passed, he went there with his wife, who helped him co-write the book, and they sat and read the entire book to Bob while he was lying in bed. Incredible. That's kind of amazing. It's old Hollywood that I love to pieces, like you said. I'm an honorary Jew. I love <laughs> old Hollywood, which was full of uh, uh, older Jews, and I love it. So it was great to sit down with him. He called me a mensch at the end, and I said he did me a mitzvah for coming on the show. Well, that is full Jew. <laughs> so well done, sir. <laughs> Thank you. So where we left off, we just left the great John Houston on Catalina Island. Yes. <laughs> and um, and uh, Giddy's has gone off to the Hall of Records where we meet a sort of smarmy, weaselly Hall of Records guy. Who shows up in so many movies. Oh, totally. Yeah. And he goes back into the Hall of Records to look at land sales and sees these big, giant white ledgers just like the one that uh, – Mulray was looking at when he saw him at the uh, at the dry riverbed, yeah. and he opens ones up. And naturally, in film, as you do when you're in a giant hall with massive hundreds and hundreds of books, you of course pull out the exact right one <laughs> that you want, the exact right moment. You turn to the exact right page and finds these little tabs yeah. that have been like glued in a whole bunch of them over the names of the people, and we see, realize that these are land sales. Mm-hmm. That all of these are in because a whole bunch of land. In the valley has been turned over recently. And he goes to the guy and says, hey, can I check one of these out? It's like, no, this is not a lending library. And he goes, "Okay, well, can I have a ruler? Why do you need a ruler, sir? Well, it's because of my eyes so I can really see each line. It helps me to read. (laughs) And he goes back in there and then with a big cough, (laughs) rips out a page. Uh, (laughs) And now we're out on the site of some farmland. And a sign says that it's just been sold. And... He's driving into this orange grove and sees no trespassing signs and he's driving between the trees and he looks around and suddenly out of nowhere, big gunshot. Shotgun shot right into the trees, misses him and he starts driving. There's a guy on a horse that's chasing him. This is actually a really exciting little chase. And scary. Genuinely scary. 
We don't know who's shooting at him. There are guys coming at him from every direction. He's, he's driving really fast through these orange grove trees. He ends up facing that guy with a horse, backs up, and drives down another road. Now there's geese in his way. They shoot at him again, hit the radiator. He goes out of control, crashes into a tree. And a guy drags him out of the car, and we get into kind of a crazy fight scene. Yeah. We, you know, it's a realistic fight exactly. scene. Exactly. Because it's clumsy and it's awkward, but it's yeah. brutal. Yeah, yeah. Really brutal. And they finally get him down, and they, they you know, and they start searching him, find his gun. <laughs> like, there's a moment where the guy said to search him, and they're just pulling everything out of his pockets. <laughs> and he's like, I said, search him. Don't, don't empty his pockets. And he kind of pushes them off, and we see that his glasses, one lens of his sunglasses is broken. And this goes back to the same motif we've been talking about of two parallel things, one of them broken. That we're going to see over and over again in the movie. All right, mister, who you with? The water department or the real estate office? And he's like, no, I'm not either of those. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm a private investigator. A client hired me to see if the water department was irrigating. Irrigating for land? The water department's been sending you people out here to blow more water tanks. They put poison down three more wells. I call that a funny way to irrigate. They ask who hired him. He says, Mulray. And they go, well, that's the son of the bitch who's done this to us. Mulray's dead. You don't know what you're talking about, you dumb Okie. What do you think about when you hear dumb Okie? Well, of course, Okie from Muskogee is what I think about that song. But... Of course, I think about the Grapes of Wrath. Oh, yeah, this right. is exactly the same moment. Yes. This is the mid-30. This is probably two or three years after the Grapes of Wrath takes place. That's right, right. Uh, he doesn't like being called an Okie. Does. And he gets a big old kick in the balls from from Giddies. Right, right. Uh, and he does pretty well against those three guys until he gets knocked upside the head with the crutch. The crutch. Yeah. yeah. Right to the ground. Yeah. Uh, and we fade in. And who's there? But Faye Dunaway, Evelyn oh. Mulray looking down at him because – and this is a really weird – like right as he said, I'm working for a client, he actually hands them – his contract or something, right. because otherwise, how the hell did they know how to call Evelyn Mulray, which they do? Um, and we cut to them driving. Beautiful, beautiful shot of them driving. She's driving. Um, and now we kind of hear what he started to figure out what's going on, which is this dam is a con job. Because if you can bring water to the valley and the valley suddenly becomes valuable, way more valuable than just farmland. And so they are – Pulling water away from the farmers in order to buy up the land cheap and then when the dam is built, there will be all this water and the land will become super, super valuable. Mm -hmm. Finally figured out. Remember way back in part one, we talked about that he got the call from Ida Sessions saying look in the obituary. And he had looked in the obituary and one of the names that he had seen as he tore that out from the paper was Jaster Lamar Crabbin. And he died two weeks ago. But strangely enough, he bought some land one week ago. Mm So we're using all these dead people's names to buy up land. And the reality is, although the facts of this are totally different, the reality is was there was a huge land grab in the San Fernando Valley and it did have to do with water. And um, Mulholland, William Mulholland, we talked about in part one, his partner, Fred Eaton, who had been the mayor of Los Angeles, he was running a major, major scam and bought up millions and millions of dollars worth of land in the San Fernando Valley. And there's also land grabs in the Owens Valley, which is where all that water came from. And I have a personal story about this. Please. So my 
great-grandmother went to UCLA in 1935, so two years before this movie was made. And my great-grandfather, who was fairly wealthy and he had been, owned a company that built part of the Golden Gate Bridge, so that was you know a big construction company, he drives down with my grandmother to get her into Westwood. And while he's there, there's a guy who wants to sell him the land of a whole bunch of orange groves in 1935. Wow. And he says no. And that or, those orange groves were right along a street called – little street near Westwood called Wilshire Boulevard. Oh. It was like a mile of farmland on Wilshire Boulevard that my great-grandfather chose not to buy. <laughs> what a different world it could have been. Yeah. <laughs> but he also was not part of a horrible landscape. True. That's fair. You know, a la, a la Noah Cross in Chinatown. Maybe they were looking for a fall yeah. guy too. You never know. <laughs> Maybe he was. So he, he dodged that bullet. Yeah. Um, and now we go off to the Mar Vista guest home. And this is like an old folks home and they walk up. Uh, the man who runs the place welcomes them and he basically runs a story about getting his dad into an old folks home. Yeah. Too much for me to handle. Yeah, yeah. Him and Faye Dunaway do that kind of thing. And, and they initially believed that the poor guy's a sucker for it. <laughs> well, I love, and I love the moment too. What sells it, I think, is he says, do you accept people of the Jewish persuasion? And the guy says, oh, I'm sorry, we don't. And he says, neither does dad. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about that line is if he says, yes, we do. And it's like, yeah. oh, thank, thank you, because my dad's Jewish. Right. And if he says, no, we don't, neither does dad. Right. And either way, he ingratiates himself into the, the group. And, and the guy says, well, I'll show you around. He goes, no, no, no. We want to look ourselves. And they go into the main room and there's the old folks and there's people playing piano and there's you know, knitting a quilt or whatever. And he looks around at the board with all the names on it and he goes, these are the richest landowners in Southern California. Right. You know? And in particular, he asks for someone named Emma Dill. And there's this nice little old lady. And he says, oh, you own a lot of land. And she goes, oh, no, no, I don't. Yeah. And they not look, anymore. She's not anymore, anymore right? which I don't quite understand. Yeah. It doesn't – because she she talks about having some property at Long Beach. Right. But I don't know what – So maybe what happened was that they tricked her into signing these papers like she was selling it. But in fact, she was actually like buying it. And so having her sign those papers, mm. she thought she was selling her land when in fact she's buying her land. She's an old lady and they took advantage probably. Of well, there's no question it seems like – and it's also something to do with her son who yeah. is part of – because in the middle of this quilt that they're making is a big patch that says AC, yeah. which stands for the Albacore Club. Yeah. And of course we remember that Noah Cross was fighting with Mulray in the photographs taken by – Giddy's assistant, and all he heard was something about Applecore. And now we know that, no, that was Albacore. Right. That's what this is about. We never find out what the hell this has to do with anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It never gets brought up with the club, and this, <laughs> it's, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, it just connects the dots a little bit. And we hear that, but we do find out that the Albacore Club is a big sponsor of this old folks home. So yep. maybe that's the main connection. An the, unspoken charity. Yes. Right? It's not an unofficial charity. An un, yeah. And and this boss who had let them in in the first place now comes back and says, "Will you come with me, Mister Giddies?" <laughs> so that's not a good sign. No, nope. he knows your name. <laughs> um, and they take him out, and there is Moleville, the the kind of thug guy we've met before. And Jake is kind of going, "Well, let's get the lady out," and then he just goes at him, absolutely pummels the guy, wipes him out. I love the I love the pull the jacket over the head move. Yeah, of course, that's a classic. I've never tried it, but yeah. <laughs> well, if we ever get a chance. I don't know if you can do it in California. There's no, not a lot of it's jackets not, in California. But this is in California. Oh, that's a fair point. Well, that's the weird one of one of the weird things about the film noir detect hardboiled mm-hmm. detective uh, aesthetic. Yeah. Is like the trench coat. Yeah. Is like that's the classic mm-hmm. 
And and frequently in these movies, it's raining and it's dark and it's yeah. like – and yet they're mostly in Los Angeles. True. You know? It's just very strange. Um and uh, so he kicks the gun away and he gets out and, and he's really about to get caught because running up now we see Roman Polanski, our guy who's the nose cutter. Right, right. And, but fortunately, who drives up right then is Evelyn with the car, jumps on the, uh, the – what's it called? The sideboard. The sideboard, yeah. Which is awesome. I wish cars still had those. They go away and we just get out. Um, I also think this scene kind of foreshadows what's going to happen later because it's him shooting after the car like what will happen later with Evelyn. Mm-hmm. Someone shooting after the car again. And she, by the way, is checking her left eye. Yeah. Uh, and that is the eye that's going to get shot later. I'm just saying. It's yeah. a little bit of foreshadowing from Polanski in there. There's no question that there's some foreshadowing there because we're going to get even farther because we get back to Face Place. Yeah. And nobody's there. Maid's gone. What do you mean you sent him away for the weekend? Yeah. <laughs> that was exactly <laughs> what I was trying to get to. And, and, and he says, she says, why do you ask? He says, well, it's just an innocent question. No question from you is innocent. And she asked, does this happen to you often? And he says, this hasn't happened in a long time. When was the last time? Why? It's an innocent question. In Chinatown. What were you doing there? As little as possible. Which is exactly what the vice uh, police officer told Robert Town when he talked to him about Chinatown. What do you do there? We do as little as possible. And then she asked, why did you leave the police force? Doesn't answer the question. Asks for some peroxide because his nose is now all messed up. Yeah. He's been in multiple fights. And they go into the bathroom. She brings the peroxide. He takes off the bandage revealing his messed up nose, which she sees for the first time. Clearly has a reaction to it. And, of course, we know where this is going. They're close to each other. They're touching each other. She's applying the peroxide. It's dripping. It's painful. And, at, and he, of course, is staring at her eyes. Yeah. What about it? What? Something black in the green part of your eye. Oh, that. It's, uh, it's flawed in the iris. Flaw? Yes. Uh, a sort of birthmark. Again, we have a pair of things, one of them flawed. And the sexual tension is really high. And then, of course, they kiss and we have that trumpet and that beautiful, sexy music from Jerry Goldsmith. That's what it sounds like when you have sex. <laughs> For you young kids. There's a trumpet and some loud noises. <laughs> There's so many jokes that popped into my mind. I'm not saying any of them. It's not that kind of show. Danny can blow your horn. Anyway. I, uh, I, I will say... <laughs> yes. I will say one thing. Do you feel good about this hookup? No, uh, uh, no, because she is like so vulnerable and every and all over the place, and he is trying to figure this whole thing out. And I don't know what his angle is here, and it feels very, but it is it fits the noir, but it feels it doesn't feel as magical as some of the other noir hookups are, um, or and tragic, but it feels I don't know, it feels clumsy and forced at times. I, I for me. The the having the femme fatale in the noir movie not telling everything to the hero, that's normal. That's right. part of the standard. Right. And even having some mix of good and evil within the romantic relationship and creating tension, that's also part of the standard. Right. But there's something – and, and here's what's hard. I can't not – have not seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. But to me, I, I, I think that even the first time I saw it, 
there's something messed up about Faye Dunaway. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's oh, yeah. not just that she's the Black Widow or the Femme Fatale. It's yeah. that I don't. But I don't think she's either of those things. That's the thing. No. Yeah. That's yeah. She's, maybe that's what yeah, it is. She's she's against the stereotype of the Femme Fatale or the Black Widow. That's Barbara Stanwyck and Double Indemnity. Mm. That's what you're looking at. Or Veronica Lake. You know, those are those kinds of characters that those actresses have played in separate films. But here, this is a woman who's been. Uh, raped or convinced that she was in a consensual sexual relationship with her father. So the level of psychosis that you're dealing with is something you have to be careful and tender with rather than just uh, – rather than consummating it because she might be vulnerable or desperate to connect with a, another human being who cares for her. So that's why it's not a – it's not a femme fatale with like ulterior motives that are evil. Her motives are to protect her daughter from this horrible – predator that is her father well and i would say i would take it a step further which is that she does have ulterior motives and i think that the movie wants you to see her as sort of a classic noir female certainly at the beginning but 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 the but the reality is is she is a yes protecting her daughter and b really damaged in like a profound way and so the the kind of the uncomfortableness of what's happening and, and we know even even not knowing what the hell's going on. Yeah. We know that Jake doesn't know what's going on. No, you know he thinks he does on some level. He's framed her as a certain kind of person, yeah. but he's not right. There's you know? just, yeah, he's not in any like position either. To yeah. be honest, he's like, uh, and we find that out later from uh, who's the sergeant again, Escobar. Yeah, when he says, please, he's a lieutenant. I'm sorry, lieutenant. Do not Escobar. demote him. I apologize. Lieutenant Escobar, when he says later on, he says, you just never learn, do you, Jake? So this is a pattern of his to get into these situations with these women, with these girls, and he's going to talk about it in, in just a couple of minutes. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, that's what we're going to get to because yeah. she's continuing to ask him about him on the police force. And we get down to Chinatown again, yeah. and she says, you know, what happened? And he said, to me, it was just bad luck. And he says, and this is, this is the movie in a lot of ways. He says, you can't always know what's going on. I was trying to keep someone from being hurt. I ended up making sure that she was hurt. Was there a woman involved? Of course. And then she says, dead? And the phone rings. Mm-hmm. And we do not answer that question. Yeah. I don't know how parallel what happened to Jake in Chinatown is. Yeah. But it seems pretty close. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the thing is, you th- he thinks he learned his lesson. Right. Right. But he hasn't. No. No. He's more harder edge. He thinks he's more aware, more... Smarter. Smarter. Right. Yeah. Right. Experienced. But he's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the phone rings. And she picks up the phone. And it's something serious. Yeah. And it's, she's immediately... Um, don't do anything until I get there, hangs up the phone, and she is like, I got to go. Yeah. And Jake Cord naturally wants to know what the hell's going on. But he starts to uh, be her inquisitor. Yeah. Uh, almost, or cross-examiner almost, because he's like, where are you going? Tell me where you're going. Right. And so it's a little abrasive for the situation, right? He wants to know, because he still suspects that she has something to do with this whole situation. Which... She well, does. she does, right? Yeah, she exactly. Does. He is absolutely correct. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But what you see here, Steve, is what we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago. You see this vulnerability in Faye Dunaway. This, and I was watching it this time before I actually uh, 
you know, kind of let the listeners know. I watched it the last hour again before we recorded. I wanted to keep it as fresh as possible in my mind. And you watching Faye Dunaway play this character on a high wire. Totally. And she, in that moment, she is so desperate to touch him and connect and make sure he's okay. And at the same time, she knows she has to go and take care of, which we assume is her daughter going to figure, which we find out later is her daughter to figure out, to make sure she's okay. So she's saying to him, please trust me on this. Please don't push me on this, blah, blah, blah. But he can't help himself and does this thing, you know, and she goes into the shower and he takes, uh, gets dressed and goes out there and busts out that taillight. Well, a couple of things about this. Yeah. So first of all, I think, you know, she's uh, filmed topless in this scene. Yes. Uh, although you don't really see anything. You see mostly her back. And and the thing I want to point out about it is that it's not exploitive no. in any way. No. And and But I think the choice to film her that way was to increase that sense of vulnerability. Yes. You know okay. what I mean? And I think, it, I, I think it absolutely works. I don't think it's purient, which is not a word I use very often. I think it is. Uh, set up really, really well. Yeah. Personally, I think he is right to interrogate her. Oh, she is really well. I mean, yeah. she is lying to him. No. So this he, is he's full of lies all over the place. It, yes, that's I suppose that's true. <laughs> but she, he was hired as a, as a detective. His clear goal. I mean, right. she he said, "I want to look into this and find out what happened." Yeah. She is hiding the girl that she said she doesn't know where she is. Yeah. And there is, and, and then she says to him, "Don't be angry. It has nothing to do with you or any of this. This is total lie." Right. You know, and he knows that she's lying. Um, and then he does just as she says. When she goes off to the shower, he goes and breaks one taillight on the car, which is going to make it easier to follow her. And again, we have two parallel items, one damaged. Great points. Um, oh, and one more thing that we should say before she goes is yeah. that she does say, oh, that fishing club, which is the Albuquerque club the old lady mentioned, right. it has something to do with my father. He goes, what? And he goes, oh, he owns it. Oh, this is a big moment here. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, Jack already knew that. Yeah. He was out at Catalina. And she's like, you know? And he said, yeah, I saw him. Which is to your point yeah. is that he's, he didn't tell her I just hung out with your dad. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He's got his own scenes. Um, and when he says I saw your father, she yeah. has a reaction. And you watch. She had already been kind of hunched over a little bit, you know, yeah. physically in the situation to try to appease him, to try to be submissive to his dominant nature. Because although Jack is lower than her, he is confidently against that backboard of the bed. It's a strong position mm. to be in. Mm -hmm. She is kind of a little bit hunched over. When she sa when he says that he saw her father that morning, she does a cross-arm thing across her chest, which is that moment of vulnerability is now yeah. over and it is protection time. Yeah. And she is shocked by this because, A, she does not want him to be in contact with her father because she's trying to keep anything she loves or cares about away from that man. And, B... I think it's also the fact that um, uh, he is going to find out even more about this situation that she is not ready for him to find out just right. yet. And, and and what she asked, like, well, what did dad right. say? And he says, well, that A, that that you're very jealous. Yeah. And then um, he says he's worried about what you might do, what, what Evelyn would do. And Evelyn's like, well, to him? And he's like, no, to the girl, to Mulray's girlfriend. Uh, he wanted to know where she was. Uh, which is true because actually he let Noah Cross hire him. Yeah. Now, whether or not he was actually serious about Noah Cross hiring him is something we don't actually get to know. But I tend to think he wasn't that serious. Right. Um, and very intensely, Evelyn says, I want you to listen to me. Now, my father is a very dangerous man. You don't know how dangerous. You don't know how crazy. Are you trying to tell me that he might be behind all this? 
it's possible. Even the death of your husband? It's possible. Now, please, don't ask me any more questions now. Just wait, wait for me here. I need you here. I had to ask the same question I asked in our last episode. Does she know? Was she there when Noah Cross killed her husband? Or does she know? I don't think she was there. I think she's beginning to suspect. Or if she... I think the, the, her suspicion of it is stronger than ever, I think. I, 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 I really her, – her behavior is so inconsistent and makes so little sense throughout this film. You know, because we know that Noah Cross killed the husband at her house, right where they are right now. Right. But, but, and it could have been maybe that's when she was out horseback riding bareback. Yeah. Um, or it could have been the night before because she also says that the night before – she, when she was gone, she was with another man mm. who could have been just some random stranger. Right. Could have been dad. Fair you point. Know, yeah. You know, so, you know, if, mm. if, if Mulray comes home, finds his wife in bed with her father. Oh, my God. You know, like, and we, and we, li- and I don't think we ever find out exactly we how don't. this whole thing went down. Yeah. Um, so, so she's off. And he, as we said before, follows her with this uh, broken taillight, pulls up to a house. We see her pull up to the right side of the house, walks out of the car, goes to the front door. Uh, she goes in and then it's a beautiful shot. Mm. Giddy's car pulls in in the foreground and the camera booms up to reveal Jack as he gets out um, and he walks towards the house. It's just a really, really well-composed shot. Yeah. And this is where you can see apparently – Polanski used his DPs for lighting, not for framing. So this is, you know, the, so so one of the things that uh, is different from director to director is who comes up with the shot list. Right. So in general, and the way we teach, like the American style, is that the director should be in charge of the shot list, which he does with the DP. Mm-hmm. So they're going to sit down and they're going to work out every single shot we're going to shoot. And of course, things change when you get on the set. But good, well-organized directors plan their shoots ahead of time because they need efficiency to get through the shoot. You know, And, and the only way you can do that is going step-by-step step through a shot list. You write everything down. You draw storyboards. You do overheads, which means you have a plan of the location and you have where every camera is going to go. So some directors are really camera-centric and they're very involved in this process. And some directors Maybe they have an acting background or a screenwriting background, and they're not really so familiar with camera. And so the DP's role gets bigger. Apparently, Polanski, the shot list was his. Nobody told him what lens they were going to use. Nobody told him where he was going to put the camera. He absolutely decided that the DP did a lot of work in terms of lighting. But this is a a Polanski uh, camera plan that we're seeing executed, and it really is beautiful. So Jack walks up to a window and looks in and sees – Faye talking to James Hong and they're looking at some papers. The music is really tense and the camera tracks right as Faye goes into another room and Jack follows with the camera as it tracks and the camera pushes in and there's the girl and she's crying and Faye's talking to her and she reaches into her purse and pulls out some pills which she tries to force on the girl and the girl's resisting taking the pills and we see Jack through the window and he sort of just pulls back into the shadows. Yeah. I can't construct how I felt when I first saw this because I know what I know. Okay. And I, what I wonder is, is like, what do you think at this point? Um, yeah, you don't know what to think, obviously, because just like Jack, you're in the dark about what this relationship is. Well, and we assume this that this is, is Mulray's uh, right. uh, um, mistress. Mistress, right. But here she is in the bed upstairs 
at her house crying. And yeah. she's trying to give her pills. So you look at that situation, you think to yourself, okay, there's much more going on here than we know. And she, once again, is not being forthright or honest with him about what her connection is to that young girl, to the girl who was supposedly Mulray's mistress. Well, and and based on what I think we would think yeah. is that Evelyn is evil at this moment. Mm. You know, like do we go – because if I go – this is the mistress of his wife. Yeah. He's been murdered. She's obviously lying to Jack about something or Jake about something. Yeah. And now we see this woman crying and she is trying to force her to take pills. I don't go. This is someone that cares about this person, mm-hmm. I think. But, of course, I can't know that because I really – the one thing about this – usually I can sort of turn off parts of my brain yeah. and – Imagine, okay, what what would I feel if I didn't know anything? And this yeah. one, I just find it really hard to do. Okay, you know, um, it's later. Faye gets in her car and gasps because there's Jack yep. in the car with her, in the passenger seat. Um, and he's the keys. Yeah, and he says either you either that or you drive yourself to the police. Um, and then he kind of goes through the scenario just as we just did. Come on, Mrs. Mulray, you've got your husband's girlfriend tied up with her. She's not tied up. You know what I mean. You're holding her against her will. I am not. Okay, now let's go talk to her. No! She's... She's too upset. What about? Hollis's death. So she says she's upset about Hollis's death. Right. Is that what she's upset about? We don't find out very much at all about Catherine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the big questions is, was Catherine actually – this is the, the the girl. Was Catherine actually the mistress of Hollis? Yeah. Because know. the movie kind of wants to have it both ways. I don't think she is. I think, once again, it was a father-daughter thing on the water. When those pictures and whatever. Right. Because there's no kissing on the lips. There's no real affectionate moments between them. So I think this is just – him connecting with uh, Evelyn's daughter. Well, the the movie wants to kind of paint Hollis as a really good guy. Yes. And I, my guess is that's probably true. But the movie also doesn't really explain why did Hollis have this apartment? Why was the girl staying at the apartment? Right. You know, like what exactly? And we know that the girl was in Mexico. Can we find this out yes. later for a while? We don't know when she came back from Mexico or why or how and what the relationship with Hollis is. And, of course, Jake is kind of interpreting it as, no, you have captured the girlfriend of Hollis to shut her up. Which is what uh, Noah had told him. Yeah. She's jealous. I'm afraid of what Evelyn will do. Yeah. Yeah. And she has a reaction and she puts her head forward and hits the horn, which is kind of a great moment. And then finally she says, stuttering. She's my sister. And he goes, take it easy. She's your sister. She's your sister. Why all the secrecy? And then she can't talk anymore. And he says, well, is it because because she was seeing your husband? And she nods. Yes. Right. I would never have harmed Hollis. He was the most gentle, decent man imaginable. Why is she telling him that she was having an affair with her husband if she wasn't? Or even if she was. I don't know. I mean, like you said, she's very confusing in her reactions to things. Yeah. Her nodding her head doesn't mean necessarily that there was an affair here. But what could be an ugly truth is that she might have been using her like Noah used Evelyn. Uh, She might have been using her daughter 
to get into out of this situation with uh, uh, Hollis or what have you, or out of the situation with Noah. I don't know. Well, and I think what we can say is that this is a very uh, a woman who's been through horrible, horrible things Absolutely. is in a terrible mental state yeah. and is not willing to really face the reality. You know, doesn't doesn't want to speak the real reality out loud, and maybe this is just some way of. You know, she is continually with Jake releasing only as much information as is absolutely necessary. Yep, yep. And so maybe this is her way of getting him to stop asking yeah. questions. Controlling the narrative. Um, and Jake gets out and he says, I'll see you tomorrow. Right. And she's basically like, well, aren't you coming back with me? Don't worry. I'm not going to tell anybody about this. That's not what I meant. Which obviously means she wants him back in her bed. Right. And he says, I'm tired, Mrs. Mulray. Good night. It's a bit of a passive-aggressive shade move. Well. Because he gets out of the car. He calls her by that Mrs. Mulray crap and says, good night. Just kind of walks away. There's no moment of affection. He's just finished making love to this woman like an hour ago. Well, she just finished lying to him really, really strongly about some really heavy shit. He lied about the dad. I don't think it's as heavy. (laughs) What? I'm I'm just saying. All right. I'm I'm kind of I'm not with Jake as a good person necessarily in this film. I don't film, think he's a good but, person. But I, no, I'm with you. I agree yeah. with that. But I also don't think he should go back and sleep with this woman. No, I agree with you. You know, him saying like "good night" yeah. that seems to make sense. But it, it was a bit of a pouty "good night" is what I thought. <laughs> There's no question yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of you know. Uh, listen, I don't know how to say this exactly the right way. Uh, you've had more experience ending up with crazy people than me. How dare you? <laughs> you have mentioned certain Not stories. Not ended up with. <laughs> well, certainly dated. You've been in a situation where my guess is you have said, good night, Mrs. Mulray. Oh, oh, I've certainly had my pouting moments with somebody. <laughs> and I and I, I hesitate in 2019 to use this word, and I hope people can forgive me, especially the female listeners, but um, the unstable element of some of my dates or some of the people I've dated that was for a, a perfectly reasonable okay. way. Some people are unstable. Yeah, I mean, that, male or female. Yeah, that is not yeah. a that is not a sexist comment at all. Okay, good. I don't intend it. So I'm Maybe. sure many women will contend that there are quite a, a few unstable men they've dated in their. Well, lives. any any unstable people currently listening to this podcast, we apologize. We, we meant no personal offense, <laughs> but we might say. Good night, Miss Mulray. <laughs> Good night, Miss Mulray. Um, uh, yeah. He, he, anyway, <laughs> Jake's back home. T- gets out of the shower, puts on some beautiful maroon pajamas. Those are some nice pajamas. <laughs> really nice pajamas. I was thinking to myself, mm. I think those are like Bob Evans pajamas. Oh, probably. Because he was always he like he had a whole thing of like yeah. doing TV shows in his bed and having meetings in his pajamas. So uh, that's kind of what I think. It's a great silk pajamas. And the phone rings. He doesn't want to answer it. Keeps ringing. Finally, he answers it, and we hear Ida Sessions wants to see you. Yeah. This is, of course, the woman that Who's hired Paul? him. This is a great question. Yeah, right. I have no idea. I thought it was Escobar until later. Why? I mean, like, why would Escobar right. call on this? He would just like, say, "Jake, come on down." I mean, right. they're the right. police. Why would he have to do this whole subterfuge? Right. And. Why would Noah Cross and the, those bad guys try to set this thing up? Because yeah. they don't want Jake to find Ida Sessions. Mm-hmm. Like who who would want to find to find the dead body and That's connected with this whole thing? That's what I wonder about. Well, okay. So let, 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 here's a little spoiler alert on my feelings on this podcast. Okay. As we've been discussing like what is really going on, what did Evelyn know, why did Noah Cross did this, at what point was this thing happening? Right. As all that stuff is happening and trying to work out the truth – I don't think there's a truth here. Okay. I think 
that so in general, to, my advice to screenwriters is the plan has to make sense, even if the plan never happens. Mm-hmm. So if you have a bag, if you have Thanos who's come up with a plan, or Hans Gruber has come to plan, I'm going to do this to do this to do this. The plan should make sense, and the fact that John McClane shows up and messes up the plan yeah. means that it never gets there. But we should should be examining the moves of the bad guy and go, this makes sense. Right. I don't think Chinatown makes sense. I think, and I don't, and and, and this is one of the rare cases where I think. The breaking some of the rules of good screenwriting totally work in this film. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. part of the point is it's Chinatown. Right. It doesn't make – we're never, ever going to make sense out of this. I have no idea who called. Yeah. And I don't know why. But they do call and they give an address in, on Kensington in Echo Park. Again, that's like six blocks from my house. <laughs> um, he goes to the house. He walks into this uh, building. The door is open, goes inside. Again, we're kind of behind him. It's dark. Very subjective camera. And we see the dead body of a woman in the shadows. He looks around in the room. He finds a wallet with lots of money. He finds a social security card, finds a SAG card. And then we hear... Find anything interesting, Giddies? And there is, as we said, Lieutenant Escobar and the mm-hmm. guy who's kind of a jerk. Um, and they are asking questions. Yeah. Now... I, I, maybe the intention is they called him. I mean, clearly, or they got called at the same time. Well, that's what I wonder about because it sounds like Escobar on the phone, but it's not him, obviously, like you said. But it could have been his partner. It could. It could have been, but for what reason? I don't. Just try to set Jake up. Well, did they? They don't the think call. that he killed her. I don't know if they do or not. I mean, if they if they killed if they thought he killed her, why would they send her? I mean, why would they have to send him an address? He's already been there. Remember what Evelyn says at the end? She says he owns the cops. He owns the police. Right. So. But he clearly doesn't own Escobar. No. Because because Escobar doesn't know who the hell he is when he he, shows up at the end of the movie. Right. But he might know the diminutive. He might own that diminutive guy we don't like too much. Possible. Uh, by the speaking of which, he he, kind of, again, giving Jake shit, asks about the the nose and says, What happened to your nose, Giddy? Somebody slammed a bedroom window on it. (laughs) <laughs> nope, your wife got excited. She crossed her legs a little too quick. You understand what I mean? If you know what I mean. That, ah. is, a, that is a great Jack yeah. Nicholson line and delivery. And the lieutenant has the photos that were the photos that he took yeah. of Mulray. So we don't – and I guess that that – that Ida Sessions had these photos mm-hmm. and he's asking like where are the rest of the photos because now he knows that Jake had photos of Mulray and maybe has photos of the murder or yeah. evidence like that because he's starting to think that Evelyn Mulray has hired Jake to cover up for the murder oh, yeah. because they're starting to peg her and that may, or maybe he's extorting from her money because he's got pictures that will be incriminating and that's what's going on and of course he takes uh, exception to that. He's like, no, I'm, I I wouldn't extort a nickel from my worst enemy. And they go, no, no, we're certain that Evelyn murdered him in the ocean and they brought him up to the reservoir to make it look like an accident because Mulray, even though he was found in a freshwater reservoir, had salt water in his lungs. This is a new, important piece of information. What do you think? Evelyn Mulray knocked off her husband in the ocean then dragged him up to a reservoir because she thought it would look more like an accident? <laughs> Mulray was murdered and moved because somebody didn't want his body found in the ocean. Why is that? He found out they were dumping water there. That's what they were trying to cover up. And the police are very, very close to swearing out a warrant. Have your client in my office in two hours. And remember, I don't have to let you go. I've got you right now for withholding evidence. 
John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Jake goes back to Evelyn's house. She's not there. He gets inside. She push it, he pushes through, yeah, yeah. Yeah, gets inside um, and goes over to uh, the garden, who is again pulling stuff out of the lawn. Again, we get that slightly racial bad for glass mm-hmm. moment. Uh, he looks around. The music comes up. He walks up to that pond. He tastes it. It's salt water. Yeah. And, it's, and in that moment is when, like you see it. He stops as he's going into the other room yeah. and because he finally understands. He's not saying bad for glass. He's saying bad for grass. For grass. And in that moment, it stops him. And he turns around and walks over and, he's, and he looked, He said, what did you say, bad for grass? He goes, yeah, yeah, salt water, bad for grass. And then he sticks his fingers in and, tastes, and it's like, oh, shit, Where, how is this happening? Right. And this connected with the lo- wa- salt water in the lungs of right. Mole Ray. We know where he's been killed, and there's still that bright sparkly thing in there. And the guard, he gets the gardener to wade into that pond and pull out a pair of glasses. Um, and there's a big music sting. And we're cut to a car driving fast, and we go right up to that house where the girl was being kept. Giddies gets out of the car, goes in the house. The music is much faster. We've had that kind of slow trumpet theme up to this point, and now it's much more high tempo. And he bangs on the door, and there's James Hong, uh, who tries to stop him. That's not going to stop him. And there's Evelyn. And uh, she starts to try to make conversation, and he's just like, where's the girl? Yeah. Going someplace? Yes, we have a, a 5.30 train to catch. And he picks up the phone because that's it. Mm-hmm. I, I, now he thinks she's the murderer. Right. He says, you know? you're, you're going to miss the train. Yeah. And, and he's going to call the cops. Yep. And Lieutenant a- answers, and he says, come to this address right now. Why did you do that? You know any good criminal lawyers? No. Don't worry, I can recommend a couple. She goes, what's all this about? And he pulls out his handkerchief, and wrapped in the handkerchief is the glasses. I found these in your backyard in the pond. They belonged to your husband, didn't they? Didn't they? I don't know. Yes, probably. Yes, positively. It's where he was drowned. What? 
There's no time to be shocked by the truth. The coroner's report proves that he had salt water in his lungs when he was killed. Just take my word for it, all right? Now, I want to know how it happened, and I want to know why, and I want to know before Escobar gets here, because I don't want to lose my license. And she starts to explain, and he argues. He's not having any of her bullshit at this moment. He says, I'm going to make it easy for you. You were jealous. You had a fight. He fell. He hit his head. It was an accident. Did he just offer her a way to get away with murder? Yeah, a little bit. You know that story about he tried to help a girl <laughs> or he tried to help someone from getting keep someone from getting hurt? Yeah. He's doing it again. Yep. At this moment, he has no reason to trust her at all. No. Nope. I mean, it's it's perfectly possible that she just, you know, cold-bloodedly murdered her husband yeah. and he is offering her a way out. Um yeah. I know. Yeah. It's a bad choice. He's a dirty player. But his girl is a witness. So you had to shut her up. You don't have the guts to harm her, but you got the money to keep her mouth shut. Yes or no? No! Who is she? And don't give me that crap about your sister because you don't have a sister. And now we get there. We're there. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the truth. Good. What's her name? Catherine. Catherine who? She's my daughter. And he slaps her. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. And he throws her on the couch. She's my sister and my daughter. Boom. That's one of the moments, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you and I both said this isn't our favorite film. Right. But... The shock I felt at this moment in the film was so extreme and it's so powerful and so upsetting. And the scene is so well acted. And what Faye Dunaway does, the way he literally and physically has Mm -hmm. to drag this out of her. And by the way, these aren't like phony little stage slaps. He is hitting her pretty hard. And because there's just certain things you can't fake. At Faye Dunaway's performance, she seems almost out of body. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a a remarkable moment in film. Now, I I, I always come back to this when we talk about a film that comes close to noir. Now, were you okay with him doing this, slapping her to try to get the truth out of her? Was I okay with him doing it? You weren't okay with Harrison Ford throwing Rich Young against the wall, six inches against the wall. But this is like more physically I, I, violent. I think, the noir. I, I think we have to step back and talk about what does it mean to be OK. OK. You know. Oh, fair. Yeah. You know, definition of OK. Yeah. Because, because it's bothering. Um, what, what bothers me mm-hmm. in films is when I see the director's point of view and biases come out in the in a sort of societal point of view about a thing come gotcha. out. So for instance, one of the most extreme versions that we've talked about is in Braveheart, the way the treatment of the gay son is. Yes. Is that it, I feel that it's treated comedically. I feel that it is it's it doesn't bother me that right. a character kills the gay lover of his son. What bothers me is the way the film is handling it. Yep. So in in Blade Runner, it doesn't bother me that a, it, it doesn't bother me that a character is forceful sexually, or even that another character resists and then responds, because humans are humans. Yeah. And, and like the idea that um, I mean, I think I'm glad you brought this up because the idea that that 
everybody in film must respond to a particular kind of morality as seen by our society at this moment doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Like, yes, we we can have characters to aspire to who behave perfectly. That's why we have a Captain America movie. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that all films should be like that. Like, you know, we just had the Joker movie recently. We've talked about films like Taxi Driver and all sorts of films where we can care about a character and also be uncomfortable with certain things that they do. Yeah. You know what I mean? So so the first thing that will bother me is something out of character. Okay, that'll bother me because that's poor filmmaking. Right. And the other thing that will bother me is like so, okay, this is a terrible example. Um I'm uh <laughs> Maybe I'll edit this out of the film. Okay. But I, I teach film school. I have a lot of students who make films. Many of those films are not good. My job as a teacher is to try to help them make their films better. I had a student who made a film in which – how can I say this very quickly? There was a woman who had been married to an abusive husband, another woman. She had an affair with this other woman mm-hmm. and now the other woman – uh, has come to her cafe where she's a waitress and and it says, I'm leaving town. And the woman who had been abused, who had just had this affair, says, I want to go with you. I love you. And the woman that she had an affair with says, no way. I'm leaving without you. The husband comes to the cafe, finds out about this other woman. And then we cut to the other woman's apartment. Mm-hmm. The husband breaks into the apartment, uh, t- beats her with a belt, ties her up, and then rapes her. Jesus. And that is the end of the film. What? Yes. And I said in the nicest teacherly way I could, I'm really uncomfortable with this film. Yeah. What is it you're trying to say at the end of this film? And the student said, and I quote, the bitch got what she deserved. Wow. Yeah. Because he felt that even though this woman had been abused by this abusive husband, yeah. that the having an affair with someone was terrible and deserved to be beaten and raped. Wow. So, again, I don't know if I'll keep this in our podcast, but the, but the point is, is like that was his personal philosophy, and sure. I would say sure. true misogyny and hatred of women yes. coming out in his filmmaking. Yeah. So, in the Blade Runner example, I think we are we are being told by the filmmaker that this is great, and my problem with it mm. is that he is a slave hunter who has totally done nothing but describe. People as it's yeah. in the in the moment before, and now he is being forceful sexually with her. Uh-huh. So that's where I go. Like I don't like it. So getting back to this particular case, yeah. no, I think it's perfectly in character for Jake to do what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I think the scene is incredibly uncomfortable. It is, and I'm supposed to be uncomfortable, right? In other words, because so in this case, the filmmaker is not saying, "Yeah, hit that bitch." Right. The filmmakers are saying, "This is horrible." Yeah. And what is about to be revealed is horrible. And in fact, in the next moment, Jake feels horrible. Right. Because when he realizes what she's saying, what she she says, my father and I, and she doesn't finish the sentence, her eyes close, and then she opens her eyes and looks at him and says, Understand. Or it's too tough for you. Right. And that's the moment where the power dynamic changes. Totally. In that relationship. At that point... She's done playing the fragile, kind of caring, trying to be the femme fatale type person. She is now the steely-eyed daughter of this uh, evil man uh, in that moment when she says, or do you need me to spell it out for you even more? And in that moment, it's where Jake is like, oh, crap, you know? And But he does ask that follow-up question, did he rape you? And she kind of hesitates. And I thought of you in this moment because I remember you said in the – 
episode one that you're not sure if it was consensual or not. And in that moment, she's not sure it was consensual or not. So so I, I hold that thought because it's sure. really important because I just want to go back to the previous question. So this is the reason why I, I don't have a problem with the filmmaking in uh-huh. terms of Jake slapping her because the whole scene is about, Jake, you don't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And you're starting the scene like you have all the answers right. and therefore are slapping this woman for the right reasons and then discover you do not. Right. Okay. I do not believe that consent is possible with a 15-year-old girl and That's her father. Absolutely. So, so to, be, yeah. to be perfectly clear, yes. but I do believe that what you said is also true. I don't think Evelyn knows. Yes. I think part of Evelyn believes that it's not rape. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if this is the only affection she's getting from her father right. and that is the way that she can feel loved, I think, you know – this is a this is a person who's been abused in an absolutely horrible way, and yeah. she's doing the best job that she can to reconcile a whole bunch of horrible crap yeah. that should never happen to a child. You know, so so yes, that is what she thinks. Right. I but she also hates Noah Cross. Yes, she does. She also loves Noah Cross on some level. You know, now the degree to which, yeah, that's the case, we don't really know. Right. Um, and now we kind of feel, hear the real answer. I ran away. To Mexico. Hollis came and, and took care of me. I couldn't see her. I was 15. Well, 15. 15? Well, we, yeah, I, I think so. So it's actually a good point. Yeah. We don't know when the, the, the sex started. Right. It could have been younger. I would imagine so. I mean, this is a this is the this is also the seventies. Yeah, you could do this in the seventies. Why yeah. are we so afraid of things in the? Well, and again, this goes back to the other point of like, I don't believe that the job of film is simply to represent aspirational characters. Right. Sometimes the job of the film is to point a, a lens at some real shit that is happening in the world and happens all the time mm-hmm. that we don't want to look at. I don't think you can solve certain kinds of problems if you don't actually look at it. Well, look how uncomfortable we are. And and I might risk uh, irritating some of the fans or listeners now, but look how uncomfortable news organizations and people in power are about the Jeffrey Epstein situation. This is the most current thing in terms of a, uh, in terms of a n- international or national story about a guy who was essentially uh, a pedophile. A, c- a serial rapist. A serial rapist of young. A systematic serial rapist right. of, of girls. With constraints. Had set up houses to make this happen and had facilitated and these a, girls. And a staff. And a, a staff. process. Right. With women. And facilitated – and men, of course – and facilitated this situation so that people of power could have access to young girls. Yeah. This is a sick thing amongst men. You don't see women creating uh, situations like this so they can abuse 14-year-old boys in a systematic fashion at a house. Not that I know of. Right. It doesn't happen. It's not that built that way. Do they do it in schools now? We're seeing it more and more. Yes, of course. But this is not a systematic thing. And this is what Epstein did. But the uncomfortable nature with which the press covers this thing, like the, the Prince Andrew interview that just happened, was a catastrophe to watch him lie through his teeth consistently about this situation. All these men in power couldn't have possibly been like, oh, I, I never saw anything. Bullshit. And I think that's uh, – we don't want to face the horrible truths about uh, uh, what we're capable of doing as a species sometimes when it's singular, not when it's massive, right? Like the Holocaust is 
hard to accept. But then you go past the number. I think Eddie Izzard made jokes about this. Like you go past 10,000 and it's almost like uh, good job. It's weird. But when it's singular, it becomes too personal, too real, and that's unsettling as hell for a lot of people to witness. Well, and if you listen to some of the stories of these women, and I and I yeah. have, yeah, and it's oh. it's hard. Yes, it's hard to listen. Yes, but the solution is not to stop listening. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. this. The, the and and this is why. Like I think movies exist to do a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah. Sometimes they just exist to make you laugh really hard and that's awesome and sometimes they make you they exist to give you a thrill or a scare and that's awesome and and i would never say don't make those movies but sometimes movies exist to make you uncomfortable yes and to make you look at things that maybe you didn't want to look at yeah. and sometimes those movies are hard to watch and you don't go like i think i'm gonna watch 12 years a slave for the 15th time right like you don't do it because it's hard to look at that but but we got to look at that because movies are also here to teach you things and you can't teach things by hiding things right you know and this is a moment where where something heavy has come out, mm-hmm. and now we have to deal with it. And it's systematic of a person in complete control and power that the moralities that were probably instructed or taught to him yeah. dissolve because he's untouchable. And, and, and Jake thought he understood. Yes. He thought that this was a scam about land development, which it is. Yeah. This he thought this was about a guy who had an affair because what's his main job? Is taking pictures of people that have so he sees everything through that frame. Yeah. So he thinks, "Oh, Hollis is having an affair with this young girl. Evelyn gets pissed off, Hollis ends up dead. All makes sense." In fact, now he's realizing that this is something completely out of his experience. Mm -hmm. This is something really different. And he jumps on her side like, oh, I just called Lieutenant Escobar. He's going to be here soon. He can't take the train. That's a bad idea. She says, what about a plane? No, that's a bad idea. He says, why don't you go to your butler's house? This is James Hong's. Where does he live? Oh, he lives in Chinatown. (laughs) So you go there. And one more thing we find out is he pulls out the, the, the glasses again. And she goes, oh, those aren't. His glasses. Those aren't my husband's glasses. How do you know? He didn't wear bifocals. And we look down at those glasses. This is the first time we see him. And we know what we notice? One lens broken. Yep. One more time we get in this thing. Um, and he says, so you go down to the place in Chinatown. And at the moment that they're kind of making this plan, down the stairs comes Catherine. Catherine, say hello to Mr. Giddes. Hello. By the way, when they talk about the address in Chinatown, she pronounces Alameda, Alameda, yeah. which just bugs me. <laughs> I just wonder, wonder about things like that. Mispronunciation runs in the family. Yep. Um, and Giddy's, she leaves and Giddy's calls up his office and says uh, list that Escobar is going to poke him in about seven minutes. So he's going to get arrested. And he tells them, meet me at 1712 Alameda. Yeah. Um, and the response from the guys who works for him? Jesus. What's in Chinatown, ain't it? I know where it is. Just do it. <laughs> What's really funny? So uh, I grew up in San Francisco. San Francisco has a very famous Chinatown. Yes. Uh, the, my image of Chinatown <laughs> was so epic when I moved to Los Angeles. Chinatown in Los Angeles is really small. Oh yeah. You know, it's not nearly as as mm-hmm. big as. But uh, Los Angeles has to, also has the has the largest Chinese population of anywhere in the United States. Yeah. But it's all out in the San Gabriel Valley. So if you wanted to get some good Chinese food. Don't go to Chinatown. Oh. Yeah, go out to the San Gabriel Valley. You heard it on the cinephiles first. (laughs) And then, of course, at that moment, Escobar shows up and he's just like, hey, I I guess we're late. She flew the coop. Yeah. And they go, well, you don't know where she went. And he goes, yeah, I know where she went. It's down in Pedro. 
I'll give you the address, which is San Pedro, which is not anywhere near Chinatown. And they go, no, no, you're going to come with us. We're down in San Pedro. And now as we pull up to the house that he said that Evelyn is at, he goes, hey, can I go in and see her just for a minute? I'll bring her out myself. He he relies on the kindness of the relationship that him and Escobar have. Takes advantage of it in that moment. And Escobar, to his credit, because we're giving people, Steve, gives him two minutes instead of one minute when he asked for just one minute. You are giving people. It's true. <laughs> you know, there's a trope in detective stories that is always – I understand. Look, tropes exist for a reason. Yeah, yeah. They exist because that makes the story good. The I am not going to share anything with the cop who's actually nice to me is like, you know, if you had just yeah. said a few of these things to Escobar, these things might not have gone so badly. Then we don't have a movie. It's a yeah. very shorter – it's a lot shorter movie. But Escobar does let him go alone. He goes up to the door. Who answers it? But a woman with a black eye. Yeah. Because this is Burt Young's house. And why does she have a black eye? She has a black eye because Jake's people took pictures of her having an affair. Right. And he basically says, Burt, you owe me a favor. <laughs> you owe me money. To get, drive me somewhere in your car. Don't ask questions. They get in the car. Yeah. Uh, do you have something to say? Yeah, I think this is such an interesting moment because this is a great um, nonverbal moment. Her answering the door and just super – this, this goddamn guy. Yeah. And her he, her wound has not even healed. It's fresh. No, it's, it's recent. So she has to look at the man who – Caused this man to do this to her, even yep. though her affair, obviously, blah, blah, blah. But like then he has to walk into her house and get a favor from her husband. Yeah. And her husband tries to introduce – and this is a great moment too, great acting moment from Burt Young. Tries to introduce Jake to her and she goes, I know who he is. And he goes, oh, yeah. He does the fist. Yeah. And the fist is him remembering because he's such a, a big galoot. Yeah. The, the uh, steps that occurred in, in this relationship. And I, I found that to be such a nice bit of subtle acting from Burt. Uh, playing this dope, uh, and it's 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 just a great moment. But she's just, oh my god, you just feel so bad for this woman and stuck in this situation well, with this and, guy. And this is not a moment that's morally answerable. No, I no, mean, right. you know, punching a woman in the eye is obviously wrong. Right. But the movie isn't making a stay. She's still with him. Right. We don't. Or have he hasn't a, left her. Either. He hasn't left her. Yeah. We have. We don't really have a. We know that this is all shitty. Yeah, yeah. But we don't but we're gonna just wander through this house and go out the other side because we end up in the car and we're driving away and, and Jake is hiding because he doesn't want the cops to see him. And he basically says, You I'll give you the fee that you owe me plus seventy five to a hundred bucks if you drive some people uh to your boat and sail them down to Mexico because Bert's a fisherman. Yeah. So he's fully on board doing exactly what he said about what happened in Chinatown. Right. I'm trying to help stop somebody from getting hurt. Burt Young is not 100% on board. He no. keeps asking questions and wondering if it's the right thing to do or yep. not. Uh, and they load up the Burt's truck with the luggage from the house. And Jake goes up to the house and he makes a phone call and he says, Have you got your checkbook handy, Mr. Cross? I've got the girl. This is talking to Noah Cross. Of course. And later we see smoke from a cigarette coming to the foreground and and John Houston enters and they go out and have a conversation. Yeah. Right in front of that pond. Um, At night? Yep. This conversation is, to me, the scene of the movie. I t- couldn't agree more. Yeah. It is an amazing scene. And of course, he calls him Mr. Gitz. Yeah. He asks, where's the girl? And he says, I've got her. Is she all right? She's fine. Well, where is she? With her mother. Yeah. To dig it in. Yeah. 
Not a reaction from Noah. No. That's what's so surprising to me. It really? Well, it, he's a gnat to Noah. A gnat to Noah. Well, but more like, I mean, he doesn't trust Evelyn. Right. You know, so what's she doing with her the daughter? Right. You know? And then he goes, I got something I want to show you because Jake thinks he's got it all put together. I love how confident he's. So confident. Uh, and he pulls out the obituary and we see Noah Cross put on the glasses and we go, oh. <laughs> what does it mean? That you killed Hollis Mulray right here in that pond. You drowned him and you left these. He pulls out the glasses. Yeah. Then we hear about the water and the salt water in the lungs. And then Noah just says and speaks, I think, quite admiring about Hollis. Hollis was always fascinated by tide pools. You know what he used to say? I haven't the faintest idea. That's where life begins. Sloughs, tide pools. When we first come out here, he figured if you dumped water into the desert sand and let it percolate down to the bedrock, it'd stay there instead of evaporate the way it does in most reservoirs. You only lose 20% instead of 70 or 80. He made this city. That sentence, he made this city, it's delivered with such love for a guy that he's totally had a falling out with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet he still has this admiration for this guy in this weird way. I feel like rich people who've been old rich, I mean, operate in a completely different way, right? Because business is legitimately business and personal is legitimately personal. Like there's this massive brick wall between the two. And I think that's how Hollis is able to, A, talk about him in a business uh, perspective, and then, B, talk about him in a personal perspective. And look at my— And C, have murdered him. Yes, and murdered him. And that's what I mean. Because to him, that's business. Hollis wouldn't go along with the plan. They had to make some money. He got in the way. I had to take him out. That's business. Not personal. It's business. I think that's true. And and we see this later on uh, as well— with how they operate with, uh, you know, I don't know. We see this in numerous movies and whatever, the separation, the separation between business and personal. Godfather says it, right? You're literally just yeah. going to say things. It's yeah. not business. It's personal. It's personal. You know? It's not personal, Sonny. It's business. Well, yeah. and that's the difference between Michael and Sonny. Yes. You know? Everything's it's personal ev- with Sonny. Everything's personal for Sonny. You know? And it's funny that you say that because I actually – I not only do I agree with it, but I feel that way sometimes. I mean that's how mm-hmm. I think is like – you know, there's a certain point. This is how I was raised. Business is business. Not that you would be right. unethical. Right. Because you should always be ethical. Yes. But you shouldn't, you know, business is business. Yeah. You know, like yeah. there's a certain point where it's like you can't sacrifice your the success of the business for yeah. this other thing. Yeah. You know? Um, it, it also, though, by the way, there is an ethical balance to be struck there. Mm-hmm. I would never screw a friend to make money. Right. But I also wouldn't sacrifice my business you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, like there's a balance of there. Of course. And this is where Jack makes the connection. And that's what you were going to do in the Valley. It's what I am doing. The bond issue passes Tuesday. There'll be $8 million to build an aqueduct and reservoir. I'm doing it. Well, if I can't bring, uh, what do you say, Cal- uh, Burbank to the wa- to the water? I if can... I can't bring Los Angeles. Los Angeles if to the I water. can't bring the water to Los Angeles, I'll bring Los Angeles to the water. How are you going to do that? By incorporating the Valley into the city. Simple as that. 
which in fact is what happened. Yes. This is why Los Angeles is such a huge, sprawling city. And all these names of places that we think are separate cities are actually many of them are not. They're, yeah. all, they're just part of Los Angeles, yeah. greater Los Angeles. And then this, this is really strange moment. After we talk about the fact that he's incorporated the valley into the city, mm. Jake asks, how much are you worth? And his response – no idea. Oh, I have no idea. How much do you want? <laughs> no, um, no, no. I'm just, are you worth at least ten million? Oh, yes, of course. I, I, I love, <laughs> I love that response. I mean, first of all, ten million dollars in 1937 is really, yeah, really. That's like Bill Gates rich. Yeah. And what's interesting too, when we saw Noah Cross in his environment, he's not acting rich. I mean, he's not no. spending lots of money. He's an actor. He doesn't care about. Right, he right. doesn't care about buying stuff. No. I mean, if you wanted something, he'd certainly buy it, but he doesn't have extravagant tastes. Power. It's Well, that's exactly what we're going to get to. He says, what can you buy that you can't already afford? And his answer is, the future, Mr. Gitz. The future. He's, he's almost giddy about it. Oh, yeah. Because it's his legacy. And he goes, he asks, where's the girl? I want the only daughter I've got left. Hmm. So he not only does he knows that Giddy's knows, yeah, yeah. but he's just saying it. Yeah. Yes, I did rape or I did have sex with my daughter and produced another daughter out of incest. I want the only daughter I've got left. You found out Evelyn was lost to me a long time ago. And that's an amazing moment too. And it's also – OK, I got to ask this question. It's horrible. Yeah. Is he going to have sex with Catherine? Yes. I think so too. Absolutely. He's a predator. Because – and he gives it all away in that moment. I think we're here now where Jake says to him like, why, why would you do something like this? And he says, most people don't know what they would do at a certain moment in a certain time. I don't have to worry about that situation ever anymore. And it's just like, fuck. So I had to – so the line before – so I just want to yeah, point yeah. – the line before that, he Jake asks, who do you blame? Her? Yeah. And he says – well, I don't blame myself. I don't blame myself. And he looks away as if like, ah, I don't blame myself. Oh. Okay. So we're – all right. This is – Important. Well, and this is classic narcissism. This is classic cognitive dissonance where he has constructed a world in which it is not possible for him to have committed something that's wrong. Yeah. Nothing could be his fault. And this is the result of – Privilege and of power and of all of those things that allow him to be a person that had sex with his daughter at some young age, at least at 15 and maybe younger, to have had people murdered, to have stolen land from people, to have starved out farmers, to have lied to the taxpayers, to do all of this for his particular vision of the future and not see the contradiction. Right. I mean that is – and I think, man, that's that's the truth. And I've met people like this. Yes. Who reconstruct the world in order to make it that they're OK. Yep. You know? Yep. Uh, and it is vile and disturbing. And I also think, you know, much like we were just talking with Jeff, mm-hmm. about Jeffrey Epstein, is how many people are involved and know about Noah Cross's evil yeah. and went along with it mm. either out of greed or fear or denial or all sorts of other stuff. Or their own naked desire for power. Mm-hmm. And that is there. Yeah. And there's that thing of like, well, why do people make excuses or defend or create narratives or twist themselves into knots trying to create conspiracy theories out of thin air about a certain situation when a person 
basically exudes all the uh, characteristics of this horrible thing, it is because that person connects them to power. That person connects them to status. Well, I would say it's also part – that's something we do all – we do yeah. it all the time on small levels. So we all associate with people in one way or another through work or through family yeah. or through friends who do things where we go, eh, and then we mentally make excuses for them because we don't want to believe that we are associating with a person who's bad. And we do it on little levels and we do it on slightly greater levels and on some degree I think it's the – it's the it's the frog in the boiling water. I mean, certainly in right. codependent relationships, and I have been to some degree part of or witness to a whole bunch of different ones. Yeah. When people come out of them, they go, "I cannot believe that I allowed it to happen for so long." Yeah. Whether it's Evelyn being, you know, having her incestuous relationship with her father, yeah. or other characters we've seen in film, is like the longer it goes on, the more your level of denial. About the situation because you're just trying to get by. Yeah. You know, and And sometimes you go, you're so deep into it that it would take such an astronomical effort to climb back out of it. You're so deep into the hole with that person that it would be astronomically exhausting. Well, and and, and frequently with these really powerful people, you're at risk. Yeah. If you want to step out, it's going to be real dangerous for you to do so. Right. Um, and I want to bring up one more point sure, on sure. this line. So Noah Cross has just said, See, Mr. Gitz, most people never have to face the fact that the right time and the right place, they're capable of everything. This is a film directed by Roman Polanski, who three years later is going to drug and rape a 13-year-old girl. I, I mean, I, I don't know what to say about that fact, right. but I do. But I also go like... How am I going to put this the right way? One of the things that you do when you write a film or when you direct a film is that if you're good, if you're good at it, yeah, you have to see truth in all the perspectives of the film, not just the heroes. You know, mm-hmm. like a great actor who plays a terrible person, yeah, they had to to some degree find that terrible person in them. That doesn't mean they yeah. are that terrible right, person, right, right. but you have to find it. Like if you want to write a movie about a serial killer, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about how to kill people, right. and you have to do it right if the movie's going to be good. So you're writing Silence of the Lambs, you have to really get behind Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill. So Polanski has this line in his film. Polanski is the survivor of Nazi. Uh, yes. Of the Nazis. Yeah. Polanski's family was killed by the Mansons. Do you think that Polanski has spent a little bit of time thinking about what people are capable of? Right. And do you think that that time spent thinking about what people are capable of, he began to wonder what's he capable of? Mm. You know, you think you have this character of Noah Cross who rapes a young girl. You you have this character of Evelyn in his film who says it wasn't rape. You think that some of those thoughts of whether or not it could be consensual or what is consent or I mean they didn't use those terms at those times. You think some of that might have gone through Roman Polanski's mind? I, 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 of course I don't know the answer. But you, you know there is, a, there is a certain place where we have to separate the filmmaker yeah. from the film yeah. and that people can make a movie about horrible stuff going on and be the nicest, kindest, most lovely person in the world. Yeah. But – Roman Polanski is not that and he has a person saying this line about the rape of a child in his film. Enough said. 
Um, and of course, Jake, who was all sorts of confident in this whole scene, didn't think about the fa- fact that maybe Noel Cross wouldn't have come alone. And there is Mulv Hill with a gun. It's not worth it, Mr. Goods. It's not worth it. Here's the girl. And we're in a car. <laughs> and again, the camera's behind, and Jake is driving, and Claude is in the, Mulville's in the back seat. And where are we driving to? The address in Chinatown. It's amazing to me that in Robert Town's early scripts, most of his scripts, they never went to Chinatown. <laughs> This is this is something Polanski insisted on. Like, no, we actually have to go to Chinatown. <laughs> um, and we show up in Chinatown, and guess what? There are his guys. Oh, great! Hey, guys! And they hold up their hands. No, they're handcuffed. And there is uh, Escobar, yeah. who says, "Jake, you're under arrest." And he goes, "Great! <laughs> Good news. Withholding evidence, extortion." Accessory after the fact. I didn't extort nothing from nobody, Lou. This is Noah Cross, if you don't know. Evelyn's father, if you don't know. He's the bird you're after, Lou. I can explain everything, but just give me five minutes. That's all I need. And Escobar's like, if you don't shut up, we're just going to handcuff you to the wheel of the car. Mm. Uh, And he's like, no, you don't understand. This guy is rich. He'll get away with anything. Lieutenant, I am rich. I am Noah Cross. Evelyn Mulray is my... He's crazy, Lou! He killed Mulray because of the water thing. I'm telling you, just listen to me for five minutes. Oh, Lock him to the wheel of that car. And who walks up in that moment but Catherine? John Houston's performance in the scene is so good. Because, and this is, and you know, say what you want about what I'm about to say. I think in whatever fucked up, sick, Noah Cross way... He does love Catherine or thinks that he does. Wow. I think that now what that love is is not what you and I would define. But when he he wants her in his life. Yeah, but I, I, I would – I hear your point of view. I hear your – I don't agree because I think as most young girls will tell you about these older predators – they turn the charm on and make you feel like you are the only person in the world. You're totally right. right? I totally and, agree. And, and so he immediately resorts to the same tactic that he probably used with Catherine when he seduced her when she was a, a teenager. With Evelyn, yeah. With, I'm sorry, with Evelyn. Uh, yeah, that he used with Evelyn yeah. when she was a teenager. To sedu- so he's already laying on the, you know, like the, the big, and even the way he shot from behind, which is great kind yeah. of work by Polanski. He is this cloak. Yeah. He is this cape that is about to envelop her, almost like Dracula. In that way. She's this innocent person, all white. It's all there. Let me change what I said okay. because your points are very strong. He thinks he loves her. Yes. Is that in the way he sees the world, that's what he thinks. And I love the way he goes, I'm your your yeah. grandfather. Because right. he's thinking about saying father. Right. Um, but he says grandfather. And just as he's trying to talk to her, Evelyn comes up. Get away from her. How many years have I got? She's mine too. That is the predator. That the the charm is done. Predator time is here. Well, it's also him framing things in a way that he's not at fault. Because in his mind, the way he's constructed it, he's her dad. Right. He has rights. So he has rights. He doesn't construct it as I'm your rapist. He constructs it as I'm dad. Um, And what does she do? 
she pulls out a gun. Evelyn, you're a disturbed woman. You cannot hope to provide. Evelyn, put that gun away. Let the police handle this. He owns the police. Get away from her. You'll have to kill me first. Get away. Get she shoots him in the arm. And yep. Steve, I don't know if this is the last one, but once again, two things that are connected, one flaw. Oh, I didn't think about the yeah. arm. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, and she gets in the car and starts to drive away. And first – And it's his left arm, isn't it? Yeah, it's his left arm. Left arm. Yeah. First, Lieutenant Escobar uh, opens fire trying to shoot the tires. Right. He shoots in the air. Shoots in the air. shoot the tires. And then Jake – and then he takes real aim and right. Jake slams into him, still handcuffed. Yeah. And then that, of course, was a bad choice because then the jerk cop the draws his weapon, yeah. fires three times. And we're in this long shot, so the car is far away. Our guys are kind of in the foreground. And first we hear a horn, and the car stops. And we see our guys kind of slowly walk forward with Lou hand and Jake handcuffed and Noah Cross and everybody else because we begin to suspect that something absolutely terrible has happened. And then we hear a woman scream. And now the guys walk faster and then they start to run. And we cut to kind of the reverse angle as, as, as they walk up. And the whole rest of the film is one shot. It's a handheld shot. And we get up there and Catherine is standing kind of in this convertible screaming. They open up the door and Evelyn falls out, shot through the head through one eye, yeah. through the eye with the flaw. This is our final two parallel things, one of them damaged. Again, John Huston's performance in this moment of his shock and his says, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Yeah. And tries to cover Catherine's face physically and, you know, covers her eyes and she's screaming and she can't stop looking at it. It's just a and, – and there is – I don't think there's any way to feel that is the right thing to feel here. Do you know what I mean? It is such a horrible, awful, unfinished, sad, sick, terrible, terrible moment. And Jake is just completely stunned. Um, and the camera pans away from Evelyn and goes over to Jake who says, as little as possible, which is what he said about what did you do in Chinatown? Yeah. And Escobar is like, what, what was that? Thinking he's like making a joke or something, I think. You want to do your partner a big favor? Take him home. Take him home! Just get him the hell out of here! And they start pulling him away and it's a hard time to get Jake away and then we have the final line of the film, which is one of Jake's guys says, Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. And as they walk away, this handheld shot goes back. And what this really is, is the cameraman is walking back and he is stepping onto a crane. And then the crane is lifting up the handheld cameraman for our final shot of Chinatown. All right, come on. Clear the area. On the sidewalk. On the sidewalk. One more thing about that dual motif thing I've been talking about this whole time. This is taught in film school. This is in books written about the film. 
Both Robert Town and Roman Polanski said it never occurred to them. This was never a plan. It's just a coincidence. Well, Coppola says the same thing about Godfather and the oranges. I had yeah. no idea that whoever handles the oranges dies. And what's his name? Uh, Shawshank Redemption said that the red truck, red does not symbolize freedom, which yeah. is taught in every film school I've been in. So, so first of all, it's totally fun seeing the dual motif, yeah. one damaged, and it's fascinating to go to take filmmakers off the pedestal a little bit and say, you know, sometimes, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah, you know, sometimes it is. It's not symbolism. <laughs> uh, uh, there are huge arguments about cutting this film between Bob Evans and Polanski. Yeah. Um, the editor is Sam Osteen. We already talked about that the film was uh, composed in nine days. Uh, the movie's obviously a huge hit. Yeah. It had 11 Academy Award nominations, uh, and it only won one. That's the biggest, as far as I know, range between nominations and win, and the win was for the screenplay. Yeah. And Town was embarrassed. He felt really bad. To I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't think he turned in his Oscar or anything. Um, and part of it is this was the year of Godfather Two. Um, but what's really weird, if you look at the Oscars of that year, it's actually split a lot. Like Towering Inferno wins a ton of Oscars that year. Well, it's like some of the technical ones. Um, it's it's really all over the place. Godfather didn't sweep at all. Right. Um, uh, so, John, we've reached the end of Chinatown. <laughs> Do you have final thoughts on this? Yeah. I, my final thoughts, of, this, of, course, of course, is from my personal point of view. So here's what I'll say. This is a very difficult film for me to come back and watch. It doesn't have a magic to me that it has for other people. It doesn't have a, uh, a, an attraction to me that it does for other people. But that being said, I think it's an incredible noir. It's a, it's a, and it's a noir that exists in the sunlight. And it's rare to make a noir hmm. work in the sunlight. And, they, and, and Robert Town, Roman Polanski, uh, Hawkshore, everybody involved – Hawk, sorry, Hawk Koch, everybody involved in this – Deserves an incredible amount of credit for creating this film. And obviously, it struck a chord with a lot of people. Uh, it is a film that people still talk about. And when you just mention Chinatown, people have a visceral reaction to that word yeah. when you're talking about the film. It's an incredible performance from Jack Nicholson that I don't think we ever saw again in any other film. Even in as McMurtry in One Full of the Cuckoo's Nest, he has a, a brusqueness and he is the hero of the piece. I don't. He's a very flawed hero in this movie. There is no one. Really, who to me, which is what sets separates this film out, there's no real hero in this movie. Everyone is sullied and dirtied by their actions uh, throughout, and it's that's that's the thing all over the. And ironically, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Evelyn is the hero of this movie because she her her instincts are pure to somehow find a way to save her daughter from this uh, predator, this vulture that is from her family. Um, it's an incredibly well shot film, incredibly well scored film, phenomenal acting with some fun humor uh, in the weirdest moments of the film. So that's what I would say. It's an incredible noir that needs to be respected and appreciated. It may not be the one that I run back to all the time when I think about a noir, but I can't help but admire its uh, uh, technical and uh, yeah, its technical ability. So you and I are very similar in not loving this film it, 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 or, or, or not having to be one of our go-to favorites, despite the fact that everything you said I agree with. It is beautifully filmed, acted, scored, written. Everything about it is really, really well made. I, I think 
in, in trying to put my finger on what it is, is that it's the particular kind of ambiguity that is so painful mm. in this film mm. that makes me – these are not waters I want to swim in for lack of a better mm. metaphor. Yeah. So I don't have – even in very dark films, there's usually something at which I can find to enjoy, albeit in a very dark and painful way sometimes. Yeah. And this one, I don't as much. But I'm really, really glad we did it for the cinephiles. Yep. This has happened so many times where as a as a filmmaker and as a thinker about film, this movie has forced me to look at it and to study it and to learn from it in so many ways that I never would have. And this is the big thing that occurred to me as I was kind of trying to figure out how to sum up my feelings mm. is that I think this is a Vietnam era film. Mm. And this is what I mean by that is that when you look at – the films, the world, you know, films of the World War II area, era, and and before it was always there was a good guy, and it was possible to do good, and even if there was the journey to doing good was fraught with mistakes and ethical dilemmas, and maybe taking small steps back before you take steps forward. In the end, the hero can win, yeah. and this movie, that's not the case. This movie. With all whatever good intentions you have, stepping into an environment that you really don't understand, whatever good you're trying to do is probably not going to work. Mm -hmm. And that to me, this is 1974. This is the very end of the Vietnam War. And that to me is the lesson of Vietnam, you know, is that you can try to step into Chinatown and when you don't really understand the circumstances and your intentions might be the best in the world. Yeah. But there are some problems and if you look at the post-Vietnam era, you look at Iraq and Afghanistan and you look at nation building and there's so many problems. John F. Kennedy saying we will do the things not because they are easy but because they are hard. Mm -hmm. You know, that spirit of America can solve the problems of the world slams up against so many things in the 60s and early 70s and the lesson is no, you can't. Yeah. No matter how strong or powerful or self-righteous you think you are, you actually can't solve certain problems yeah. because – forget it, Jake. <laughs> it's Chinatown. Yeah. So that's what we think of Chinatown. I hope you've enjoyed this two-part episode. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. Please visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram on our brand new social media, media platforms. On Twitter, it's at Cine-Files. And on Instagram, it's the Cinephiles Podcast. Thank you very much, Luke Lesson, for setting that up for us. Absolutely. Um, you can subscribe to the show on all the usual places, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. Please leave reviews on iTunes. They're the most important thing you can do for the show yeah. is leave us a review there. Tell people why you like the show and bring other people to our podcast. Uh, leave comments on YouTube. You could support the show or pick a film on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can buy Chinatown and every other movie we've ever reviewed along with your new refrigerator, your new uh, <laughs> macrame set, yeah. possibly some products from Amazon Fresh by visiting cinephiles.net and you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris and on Instagram at SR Morris 1. John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. See all the things I'm doing there and all the 
many travels I go on. <laughs> many lately, travels. Lately. Uh, but thank, again, yes, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. And please go and uh, follow us on all the social media. We're trying to expand the brand as much as possible. We're trying to get more and more people on board with this show. Uh, and that one of the things that really helps us do that is, for have, is having numbers on our social media. So please go. And I guarantee you we're going to be doing fun things on that social media to keep to make your follow worth it for you. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles with another great film.